You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Hey, Kyle. Here we are. Hey, guys. Explosions in Ephesus. Mm -hmm. How do you like that, huh? You like it. I love it. (laughs) I I love that title. I really do. Um, On today's episode, we are in the book of Acts, and I got to tell you, we swim through some of these passages real fast. And uh, we, I know we would love to spend more time in each one of these chapters, but today we're going to talk a little bit about what God did uh, through Paul uh, and through Silas uh, with the Philippian jailer. But then we also talk a lot about what he did among the community there in Ephesus and how the gospel disrupted not just individual lives, but a whole society. Hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, y'all. Hey, we're back in and uh, talking today through Acts 17 and getting into Acts 18. We'll just kind of see where we go. I'd like to get to Ephesus and what goes down there. We've titled this episode Explosions in Ephesus. So We? I would um, not say we have titled it I that. I have titled this. Like clickbait Warley. Has you guys, have you guys that. ever seen the video, Cool Guys Don't Look at Explosions? No. There's a video. It's like an SNL, like digital short called Cool Guys Don't Look at Explosions. And uh, it's all these videos of like action movies where the guy like blows up a building, but he's walking away. It doesn't even phase him. Yeah. And this song is cool guys don't look at explosions. They just turn their back and they walk away. Like totally unfazed. Gus, 20 feet away oh, from my. You're saying cool guys don't look at explosions. No. I thought you were saying cool guys that look at explosions. It's like, no, 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 like, no, no, no. That, that sounds don't, dumb. Don't, that don't look at explosions. Okay. Um, it's like just a highlight reel of Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> And Bruce Willis, like, <laughs> triggering a bomb and walking away from it, not mm-hmm. even turning around, right? A house blew up 20 feet behind them and totally unfazed, not startled at all. Because they're cool guys. <laughs> cool guys don't look at explosions. <laughs> so today, um, we're going to uh, pick up where we left off with Paul and Timothy locked up in jail. Uh, actually, it's Silas. Paul and Silas locked up in jail. Excuse me. <laughs> um, Paul and Silas locked up in jail. Uh, and here we find out that, man, uh, people are bothered by Paul disrupting their economy and Paul disrupting their business, right? If you remember from the last time we talked, there is um, a, a woman named Lydia who's converted. They're doing ministry in Macedonia as they're it look, what it appears to be discipling and, and teaching and, and uh, working with this group of believers, new believers that include Lydia. Um, there's a young woman who begins to follow them who is tormented by an evil spirit, spirit of divination is what scripture calls it, and that this spiritual torment, this demonic presence um, is pestering Paul, and it says that he became greatly annoyed and that he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, came out of her that very hour. But her owners... Again, because this young slave girl is being exploited and trafficked for the purpose of unrighteous financial gain. gain. Mm -hmm. Um, They're mad. They're very mad. And so they drag them before the local authorities. They give a bogus reason why, uh, because they're subverting their laws and customs. And they beat them up and they throw them in jail. And so we're here. And uh, Paul and Silas, it says in verse 25 of Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. The jailer wakes up. He finds out about it. He draws his sword out um, and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners escaped. Why, why is that? Why, Like, just real quick. Just he's shame. He's not done his job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honor, shame, culture. He's failed at his job. Mm-hmm. 
the easiest route here is essentially to kill himself. But Paul cries out with a loud voice, hey, don't do that. Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They speak to him the word of the Lord, and all who uh, all who were in his house. He, which is important. Which is important, yep. <laughs> because then they get baptized. It's yep. interesting that the household heard the good news, too. Didn't just it's true. <laughs> then he brought them up to his house, set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household. They believed in God. Okay, so let's pause here. What is like – so they're locked up in jail. They're mm-hmm. praising God and this earthquake happens. But what really capt- – it's not the earthquake that captivates the heart of the jailer, right? Right. I mean like the because he, he the earthquake happens and he's like, I got to kill myself. Yep. Mm-hmm. So his reaction to like the wonder here is – not just immediate belief, which I think is important. I think we oftentimes in Acts, we do see signs and wonders accompanying the preaching of the gospel, mm-hmm. but it is not the immediate result of every sign or wonder that people are like, I want that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They see this earthquake and this guy immediately thinks, I'm a dead man. I need to kill myself now. That's the honorable way out here. Mm-hmm. But he ru- uh, Paul cries out to him and he rushes over and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So what is the compelling witness? Like what compels this guy to believe? I, mean, I think one of the things is that uh, Paul and Silas didn't leave yeah. after the earthquake. They're still there. And, mm-hmm. the, and he, he says, no, 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 don't, don't kill yourself, which is – I hadn't planned on saying this. I'm not even sure if you could make this argument from the text. But you could say there's just a value of life there. Oh, because, I think absolutely. Yeah, they very, they very much could have just allowed him to kill himself and then walked out of the prison. But rather than that, they say, you're an image bearer, create an image of God. We, we, want to, we want you to not harm yourself, number one. Number two, we want to proclaim the good news of Jesus to you. Yep. Yeah. So they're – there is a compelling witness. They proclaim the good news to him, and he's like, I got to, like, I, my whole household has to know about this. Yeah. So maybe you could even say it's not just that something supernatural happened, but there's also an ethic that he is the exact opposite right. of yes. his that yeah. accompanies. And, he, and then that makes it a believable, credible message in his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, too, it's probably reasonable to understand that be, because of all the uproar here, this guy probably has some inclination of what these guys have been up to, right? Yeah. That's like, right. He's got some indication that, like, these guys have been out there talking about stuff. Well, if there was any thought in his mind that these guys had an angle they were working, yeah. at this point, that is completely obliterated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you're if you're self serving, you're not sticking around when you're miraculously freed from prison. Yeah, right. It's it's counterintuitive. It, you're right. You're right. In the extreme. Um, so moving forward in the story, the next day, essentially, the magistrates tell them, "Hey, let these guys go." Now, this is really interesting here. <laughs> But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported those words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city so that they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Okay. So a couple of things to note about this. Paul, who has been practicing a kind of honestly, civil disobedience here, mm-hmm. um, because nonviolent as it is, essentially says, no, like we're not going to deal – like we're not just going to be let go through the back door here. Mm-hmm. You threw us in here. Mm-hmm. You need to come let us out. Mm-hmm. And he invokes this idea of Roman citizenship. Now, why do they – why is that such a big 
deal for them when it says, oh, wow, we didn't know that these folks were Roman citizens. Yeah, they just assumed that they were just someone that they could – that they were just Jews. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, oh, there's no harm going to come to us. The Jewish, you know, Ju- the Jewish people don't have any real power They don't have here. any real power. They- but when they find out they're Roman citizens – Shoot. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because they're in big they, trouble. They, because they didn't follow due process. Roman mm-hmm. citizens should be afforded some courtesy because of the great power and might mm-hmm. of Rome. There's this idea that a citizen of Rome should be able to travel the world in peace. Right. Right? Um, and unbothered um, because of they're a citizen mm-hmm. of Rome. Just like we presume now that when U.S. citizens travel broadly, that if they're for some reason, if they come under unjust persecution or prosecution, the U.S. typically does not respond well to that Mm -hmm. because there's this idea of, hey, we're a global power. Our citizens should be able to travel freely in and out of uh, the countries of the world. And Rome had the same view. Well, and it's not just that they've been wrongfully imprisoned. They shouldn't have been beaten either. Right. And so uh, it's funny because now you look back on the story of the – often you hear the, the freeing of Paul and Silas by the earthquake as a standalone. But now you find out, oh, wait a minute. Paul (laughs) and Silas didn't leave because Paul is going to have a bigger uh, point that he's going to drive home than simply, I want to be liberated from prison. It's Mm -hmm. that, no, you shouldn't have put me here in the first place. And the only thing that's going to make me leave is you owning up to what you've done. Yeah. Like not even a miraculous earthquake (laughs) means that I walk out of here and you get off the hook. Right. (laughs) Um, it, it heightens. Yep. Uh, it heightens his point in a in a very emphatic manner. Yeah, I actually yes, I agree, and I actually think here too that I don't want to go too far into this unless we just all want to go there. But there is often a conversation about um, that Jesus is challenging the structures of power, and Paul is largely unconcerned with this, uh, with with kind of systemic addresses, mm-hmm. and you know, whereas Jesus is trying to come in and kind of he's addressing systemic powers and how mm-hmm. they influence and their impact, and also subverting them through a new kingdom. Whereas Paul's concern is more uh, on the individual and the, the, mm-hmm. like coming to faith in Christ, personal faith in Jesus, and this is actually a picture when you. see see these two things collide. You have the mighty act of God in the earthquake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the preaching of the gospel mm-hmm. uh, to a, to somebody who is compelled by the righteous and holy life of somebody. So there is individual change here. And But then in the face of, a, of what was an unjust systemic issue, like it was a structural thing that had been levied in an unjust way towards Paul and Silas, he actually challenges it. And he doesn't challenge it. Paul's challenge here is not on like explicitly gospel grounds, is he? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It's a citizenry challenge. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's so um, I think a lot of times we talk about love and justice, and you have one camp that's often talking about, well, the way to create change in a given community is merely love, loving one. He does that with the jailer. But there is also justice, which is addressing systems problems, and this is exactly what he does, and he doesn't do so in a way that – I want to. I don't mean – I just say this provocatively. Paul does not take a gospel-centered approach <laughs> to being let go of jail. <laughs> I mean, for real. Can you just, what would the gospel-centered approach have been? It would have sounded something like, tell the magistrates that Jesus is Lord and he has triumphed <laughs> over the princes and principalities of this evil age um, that you have submitted yourself to. Uh, and so tell the local magistrates that the great triumphant Lord Jesus, we, those are all the true things. Right. But his uh, his appeal here is is purely an appeal of, this is not fair. Mm-hmm. It's not just, and it's not what should be afforded 
Roman citizens. And that's kind of the irony is he'll actually use the systems in place to his benefit to leverage them ultimately for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, Yeah, he wants another audience. That's exactly right. He ultimately does this. We'll get to this in a few weeks uh, in Acts chapter 22. Uh, he is in, he's before a Jewish tribunal, and they're they're preparing to flog him. They stretch him out, and he says, "Are you about to do this to a Roman citizen?" And he demands an audience before Caesar, mm-hmm. which is why he has to go to Rome. Mm-hmm. Yep. And mm-hmm. so he's he's actually being very very shrewd, strategic, yeah, strategic to allow himself great uh, greater audiences isn't the right word, additional audiences in order for the gospel to go forward. Yeah. And so in, he's not inroads. Because yeah, right. also he knows that the further up the chain he pushes this, the higher. And, and I think what we're seeing here is where does he start? He starts with uh, women who are, you know, really not of great merit or concern in the culture. He starts there with the conversion of Lydia and the casting out of the um, demon from the from the slave girl. And now we're starting to see, oh, now the jailer has paid attention to him. Oh, now the magistrates are having to deal with him. He's working his way up the chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, so moving forward, skipping forward a little bit here, um, we've got Paul, and they end up in Athens, right? Now, they, they take a journey to get there, but I, I do want to skip ahead because this Athenian encounter is pretty significant, and we still need to get to Ephesus as well. But Paul, it says, was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that it was a city full of idols. And so <laughs> Paul... It says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so it says that there are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who also converse with him. So Paul is in this kind of epicenter of the community, and he's engaging with the ideas, not Mm -hmm. just of the Jews present, but of Greek philosophers. Epicureans and Stoics is a reference to two schools of thought in Greek philosophy. Which pairs well with the Pennington episode that we did a few weeks back. absolutely. Christianity is now a philosophy mm-hmm. that is engaging mm-hmm. with the other philosophies of the world as a conversation partner. Yeah. Give us a crash course in Epicureanism and Stoicism. Like, give your one word, your one sentence definition for each. Uh, Epicureanism would be, oh gosh, what's the phrase? Eat, drink, drink and, and be, be merry, merry because tomorrow mm-hmm. we die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rich enjoyment of life yep. is the kind of the goal. And then by contrast, Stoicism is that the good life is lived by becoming virtuous through. Uh, Abstinence, abstinence, basically, yeah. yeah. yeah essentially, it, mm-hmm. abstention from the world. Mm-hmm. And not caring about the things that are out of your control. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Paul's dealing with different schools of thought. He's dealing with Jews. He's dealing with the Epicureans. He's dealing with the Stoics. And he there's a moment. It says in verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that God made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then he, ma- he goes on, he made everything in the whole world, and that, uh, that, that we should seek God in the hope that they might find their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And so... Paul talks about, hey, here's what's going on. I've seen that you have an idol or an altar to, with the inscription to the unknown God. And he uses that as a jumping off point to talk about the true God mm-hmm. who has made himself known. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up quoting um, one of their own poets. He says, for in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So I want to talk a little bit about this speech 
and some of the significance of it, what it talks about, and then what its method teaches us for engagement with the world. Yeah. So what are some things that stand out at Paul's speech in the Areopagus? Well, I think you're seeing it's building on the theme of the earlier speech that Paul and Barnabas made when they were confused with Zeus and um, who was it? I don't remember. Who's the messenger god? Hermes. Hermes, yeah. Zeus and Hermes. So in back in chapter 14. And so basically they're like, hey, hang on, hang on. We're not Zeus and Hermes. We're just men just like you. And it says that even the priests of that city came out and offered sacrifices to them. And so they're once again, they're having to push back against this idea of the, the, the pagan culture that's so pervasive. Yep. This time it's Paul and a different traveling partner, but it's it's along the same lines. It's like, hey, because back in that earlier appeal, it was, hey, God is the one who has given you um, the the rains and the harvest. So all of, you're worshiping these gods who you believe are the origin of these things, and I'm telling you, there is a God who is the origin of all of these things, and 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 you're giving worship to to vain things. And yep. so he's he's going to build on that here, but now he's going to build on it. Uh, because he has this really great teaching illustration. Like, I love this. I love how he's he's always looking for the next lesson mm-hmm. in my mind. And so he's like, you know, work idle to an – or uh, um, um, not idle. I, I'm sorry, guys. You're going to have to edit this. An altar. To- altar to yep. an unknown God. Uh, that's the perfect opportunity for him because yep. he doesn't have an unknown God. He has an invisible God who's yep. been made visible in Christ. And so the other the other thing that's that is 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 – compelling is that in that earlier count where they're confused for 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 Zeus and for Hermes mm-hmm. basically what the people are looking for when they confuse them is they're looking for an incarnation right yep and so now here he's going to he's going to make that argument again with a different crowd yeah and i love too that the way that he does it is by appealing to things that they both know and want mm-hmm. yeah. it's like you want true knowledge you want to know who god is both right. your philosophers and your poets and let me tell you who he is and the way he does it is he he gets at what makes the god of the bible unique among the claimants to be god throughout the world which is that he is not uh detached transcendent, right. that he's not merely far high above lofty and unknowable, but that he's also he's imminent, near. Yeah. He says he created everything and yet he is not far from each mm-hmm. one of us. Mm-hmm. And that again is such a, um, that is one of the ways that scripture throughout is contrasting the true God from the false gods of the world, is that false gods always veer either to categorically transcendent, detached and unreachable, or categorically imminent, meaning absolutely enmeshed, entangled, and not distinct from, whereas with the God of the Bible, and we see this when uh, in the Pentateuch and contrasting it with the false gods of Egypt, and we see it here with contrasting with the false gods of Greek thought, that this God is one who is both holy and near, mm-hmm. far and near. Mm-hmm. He's almost doing something. I mean, this is a stretch. My mind's on it because we're also talking about the Apostles' Creed on the podcast. But he kind of does like a like he's doing two things. He's doing like a theological overlay of the storyline of Scripture. It's yeah. he, he's not using the language that we use in the Creed. But it is God the Father Almighty, mm-hmm. the the Maker of heaven and earth, mm-hmm. and then He moves down through uh, our sinfulness. We're the one. Uh, uh, what's the right way to say it? He says, uh, "We are God's offspring," and then yeah. He moves to now that now we're called to repentance, so that we could have forgiveness of sins. He's appointed a day at which the Son is coming to judge the living and the dead, which He says at the end, "There's going to be <clears throat> a day appointed uh, for you to be judged, for the world to be judged in righteousness." So again, it's kind of like. 
he's making really clear theological statements in story form, mm-hmm. which is really... In a particular order. That's exactly for right. For a particular purpose, yeah. And it is an adaptation of those earlier sermons that we heard that were preached to predominantly Jewish mm-hmm. or almost entirely Jewish audiences. And now it's it's adapted for the purpose of this, this current audience. But he's also, I think, um, differentiating Judaism from his own message because he mentions that God does not live in temples made by man. Yeah. And, and, and it, it was known that there was a temple yeah. in, in Jerusalem, right. right. For the Jewish faith. And so in, he's also saying, Hey, this is not Judaism that I'm preaching yeah. to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, heard, I heard a sermon once, uh, around this idea. I know we got to move, move on. But Paul, First Corinthians two, might be Second Corinthians. I can't remember. Uh, I become all things to all people, weak, yeah. strong. You know everything. Mm-hmm. And he, the, the uh, preacher is making the point. Yeah, Paul finds ways to adapt his message, mm-hmm. but becoming all things to all people would be, in some sense, an over an exaggeration because he, because he knows exactly what not to become here. Mm-hmm. Right? He's not adopting a Greek or a Stoic or an Epicurean philosophy. He's able to think about meaningful engagement with without becoming like. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He which doesn't. Is, he doesn't alter the, right. the essence of the message. He just alters but the vehicle finds, by he which he communicates roads, it. Which yep. I think is a really helpful way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilia Strotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. So moving forward from this passage, we find out in Acts 18 that Paul, he's got a side hustle. Or maybe not a side hustle. It's a hustle. He's got a trade. He's got a hustle. <laughs> and that hustle is tent making. So we, we open up in Acts 18 and it says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So now we have this picture of Paul doing, essentially, Paul is working as a tent maker. Mm -hmm. And then on the Sabbath, he's going in and he's reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And he's appealing to them, probably in the same ways that we've seen him appeal in the synagogues and on the Sabbaths in the past, which is approaching people and engaging with them. And... uh, this idea of tent making, it comes up like Paul has 
this thing that he can bring with him into ministry environments. And you hear much to do kind of made about tent making and having a tent making trade. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. there are some people who develop a whole philosophy of ministry around this. But for our purposes, why is it significant that Paul is doing this? Is Is there any... Should we make anything of it? There are some people that develop, again, whole ministries around, you know, you shouldn't have paid pastors or whatever. I mean, you're a church planner. You answer the question. Well, I do think that in this time, in the going forth of the gospel, where, where, you know, there are not already tightly organized and institutional groups of Christians in these communities. Paul, especially with this, he mentions this in Corinth, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, that this trade was a way of removing obstacles to the gospel. Mm -hmm. Right? There's no way anybody could accuse him that you're preaching this for money. Right. Which, uh, again, is there are certain, there are, there are certainly situations in the history of the church, past, present, and future, where money and ministry have been abused in significant ways. Mm -hmm. So for people to recoil at the idea of like having church staffs with, you know, people that are, I understand some of that. But, I don't know that uh, we know for sure that Paul is not making this into a philosophy because he says later, hey, I have foregone this right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not something that is inaccessible. But I think this trade here stands out as a reminder that for Paul, he is willing to do a lot. Um, He is willing to clear just about every potential obstacle and pitfall away. Another thing to realize is that in this time, there were traveling teachers who's essentially, it was a cottage industry Mm -hmm. around showing up in a town, being a traveling teacher. The Epicureans and Stoics had reams of them Mm -hmm. who would show up in your town and say, do you want to be taught by me? And they would be doing it for their own financial gain. Mm -hmm. So there was a whole cottage industry around teachers who kind of wandered around into different cities and then taught to, like, essentially to earn money. Yeah, the idea of teacher-disciple was not com- uh, uncommon. Right. It was not unique to Christianity. This is right. something that, I mean, you have the Platonic school of thought, the Aristotelian school of thought, and others that are, would have been much, much, much smaller yep. in kind of these these towns. But something else that's important, I think, here with, <clears throat> excuse me, tent making, is Paul's not the only tent maker in this passage. Mm-hmm. Priscilla and Aquila are also, and again, later in this chapter, they're also going to be seen to be doing ministry, uh, guiding Apollos into a better way of understanding the scriptures. Right. Right, so you have not just Paul, who's kind of this missionary doing more like the quote unquote uh, vocational ministry, but now also tent making. You also have two Jews who had to leave Rome because of a decree by Claudius, and they're having to make a, a, a trade for themselves. They end up living together and then also doing ministry together, mm-hmm. which I think is important to mm-hmm. talk about. I mean, like <clears throat> the fact that Priscilla and you could do like a whole faith and work you know, episode right mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. You said two faithful Christians who were ministering alongside Paul as tent makers, also participating in significant ways in the furtherance of the gospel and instructing actual Christian teachers. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah. Yeah. So when, I, one last thing. Yeah. I love verse five. Yesterday when I was reading this to prepare for this, I don't know. It just, it just struck me. So Silas and Timothy had left that they're not coming back from Macedonia to meet him in Corinth and they see Paul was occupied with the word. Mm-hmm. That just struck me. Yeah. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Just like, man, I don't want to be cheesy. But like, I want that to be true yeah, of yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, you know, if if like if, I, if you walk in my office, I just want to be like occupied by the word. Right. <laughs> you know, but like I just I want to be somebody that's just meditating on, thinking about, and I just that would be a commendation to have said of yeah. anybody. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to pile onto that because I discovered something <clears throat> interesting this week. Um, 
that there is a repetition throughout the book of Acts that is not found in the rest of the New Testament, really, of the idea of the word of the Lord, the word of God, the word, and that when the um, when the book of Acts speaks of the multiplic- multiplicative thing that is happening, it doesn't say, and the spirit of God was multiplying among them, or it doesn't even say, you know, that Jesus Christ was multiplying among It, it says the word of the Lord was multiplying, and, right. it, and it repeats it. I'm going to try to remember. I did a search on it, and this is a word of God or word of the Lord is in Acts 23 times. Um, And the next runner-up is the book of Revelation that has 11 mentions. Um, And then the rest of the books in the New Testament say word of God or word of the Lord one or two times or no times Mm -hmm. each. So you can fairly argue that the book of Acts is very concerned with getting this across, but that our focus is to be on the word of the Lord as the thing that that is the vehicle through which the Spirit is moving and granting the knowledge of um, Christ and and of who God is in the world. Yeah, I, I think, just thought that I, was interesting. I think you're exactly right. I didn't know the numbers, but that's certainly been a theme that's been pulled out. Mm-hmm. It even talks about the word of God multiplying. The word. Yes. Uh, it well, says, it's right after Herod gets eaten with worms. Is one mm-hmm. of the places is the word of God continued to flourish. It and, and you would think it would say, and it does say things like that the church is multiplying, sure. but that it's inextricably linked to this idea of the word of the Lord going forth. Yeah, the word of God increased, mm-hmm. and, increased multiplied. and multiplied. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I love that. It's cool. So Paul, he makes his way to F- – well, I don't want to skip over the, the Priscilla and Aquila thing. Okay, so in Acts 18, we I know we're having to move through por- portions of this. Acts is just so big that we have to swim through parts of it faster than others. But in Acts 18, verse 24, we read this encounter, which I think is really interesting. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John, which is an important point here. Mm -hmm. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, that's the husband and wife you heard about earlier in Acts 18, um, when they heard him, they took him and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, this is an interesting encounter. One, because we get a picture of something that we really love a mm-hmm. lot and talk about a lot, mm-hmm. which is the value of theology and community mm-hmm. and theology done among brothers and sisters, because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what happens here. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Priscilla and Aquila uh, with Apollos, right? I mean, we get a, like a little glimpse. Uh, you talk about proto-Trinitarianism, you used that phrase in an earlier episode. But here you get kind of a picture of what doctrinal work together looks like, mm-hmm. what working through issues of the faith are. So Apollos is preaching and it says that they pulled him and they said, hey, let me, can we share a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm under the inclination that that caveat of he only knew the baptism of John, that they're probably Priscilla and Aquila having spent time with Paul are coming back and saying, hey, have you heard about this baptism of the spirit, essentially? Right, which is a theme that obviously has already been yeah. introduced earlier in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so... The, but it also says he's competent in the scriptures, yeah. which would mm-hmm. mean he's competent in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. he's unfamiliar with... Yeah. Uh, and he's he's obviously un, very familiar with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Mm-hmm. He's unfamiliar with this this new baptism mm-hmm. uh, that cor- corresponds with the new covenant. Yeah. But I find it interesting first <clears throat> that Luke is Luke Luke wants to go out of his way to say he was competent in the scriptures, but he was making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Right. I find that super comforting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. hugely comforting. Because I mean, I imagine him going back and being like, "Hey guys, oh, I had this part right, but I didn't have this part right." And like, do a do we do that? 
B, do we allow our teachers to do that? Mm-hmm. That's right. Because uh, especially like in the current climate on social media, et cetera, et cetera, where it's wrong. just, yeah, you're yeah. gone, man. You know, you were supposed to be perfect to this. Isn't the Holy Spirit speaking through you? Yep. And here's someone the Spirit is speaking through, yeah. but he still Using. has limitations yeah. mm-hmm. in his understanding. And there is, uh, there's, there's grace for him. And I would imagine on his part, humility too. Otherwise, mm-hmm. the story probably wouldn't be in here. Well, yeah. he listens, but then there's also grace coming from Priscilla and Aquila right. to him. They take him to the side. Yeah. They weren't like in the middle of his teaching, like, hey, bro, wait a second. Yeah. You've got this a little mm-hmm. wrong. It was a, <laughs> like raising hey, their hand in yeah, the middle. Excuse yeah, yeah, yeah. me, <laughs> sir. You know, they take him to the side and they, they, and I love how it says they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we all need Priscilla and Aquilas in our life. Yeah. Just gently guiding us, helping us. And we probably need to be Priscilla's and Aquilas for other people that when you want to correct somebody, do it graciously, do yeah. it gently and charitably. And it's it says more accurately, which is, is important for us to have a category within the church. We we tend to be so black and white yeah. that we say there are false teachers and there yeah. are true teachers. And that's there are false teachers and true teachers, but among true teachers, there are um there are accurate teachers mm-hmm. and there are more accurate teachers. Yeah. And sometimes there are inaccurate teachers. Yeah. And, and we need to be able to acknowledge that um, in the function of teacher, there is a combination of mm-hmm. uh, of the divine and the human. Yeah. And, and that the, sometimes the human obstructs the divine, uh, that the spirit's words are sometimes garbled yeah. through through a well-meaning um, teacher who is pure in motive. And we need to be willing to let them say, hey – I said it this way. I should have said it this way yeah. without deducting points for the, for their connection to some secret source of, you know, mojo. Right. Um, so I can't resist talking about forward. something that's going on here linguistically. Okay. Let's do it. Um, if you look in the earlier portions of the book, when we're talking about the relationship between um, Paul and Barnabas, mm-hmm. we first see them introduced traveling together, and they're spoken of as Barnabas and Paul, or mm-hmm. Barnabas and Saul. And then as the focus of ministry shifts from what Barnabas is doing to what Saul is doing, the reverse happens, and they begin to be referred to in a different order. It's, mm-hmm. it's Paul and Barnabas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see this in other places in the scripture, too. And when we come to Priscilla and Aquila, you said Priscilla and Aquila, they're this husband and wife couple. But really, you probably should have said they're this wife and husband couple based Mm. on the order in which they're given to us in the text. And so commentators will say, you know, she probably had higher social standing or she Mm. probably was more successful in the tent making business. But that there's a significance to the order in which their names are mentioned here. And I think since we've seen a theme in the book of Acts of women of influence who are able Mm. to shape um, the conversation or shape the way that the church comes together. She's another example here that's given to us. It is um, the order matters of of the way, like he could have said the reverse order right? and he didn't. And Mm. so... um, Is that why you guys say Macy and JT? Yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) That's just because we like her more than you. It doesn't have to do with depth. It's just, yeah. Uh, but, um, and so, but I think we should pay attention. We should ask, yeah, yeah. you know, why that, that's something that we just, we're so used to hearing Priscilla and Aquila that we don't stop and go, wait, that's actually really unusual mm-hmm. that, that it's in there in that order. Why is that? Are there other places in this book that we've mm-hmm. seen similar things? So yep. for what it's worth. That's good. I, I had never noticed that. I hadn't thought about that. Okay. I appreciate that though. Yeah. Um, Paul, so he, Paul lands in Ephesus where Apollos has been ministering and it says that when he landed there, uh, he immediately starts to engage with the disciples. And he says he found some disciples, and he said to them, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" And they said, "No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit." 
And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, here you go uh, again, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, we need to pause here because there is a question. Um, there's a whole school of thought that would say a second baptism is necessary for the Holy Spirit. And that what we're seeing in Acts is that there's a first baptism that's one of repentance and a second baptism that's one of filling or indwelling. And that that baptism is a baptism of fire, that it's not necessarily even a baptism of water, but it's a baptism of fire that is accompanied by the laying on of hands and the speaking of tongues. That is not my view. I don't think that that's what Paul has in mind here. That's Jen's view, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it not. It is not. But just I, here's the thing. I know you're always wanting to represent all theological opinions. Yes. And so we've got the party line over here. Jen, can you? Well, you want me to say why people believe in second baptism? It, yes. I mean, it has in large yes. part. I'm, just, it's I, I, I'm joking with you. I know. But you also. I'm happy to. I think I you really, can do it well. I'm happy to. Yeah. I, well, because if you are reading um, at face value, if you're reading the book of Acts through the lens of it's mm-hmm. it's an instruction manual right. on how we should um, view um the way a church should operate, the way salvation happens, um, and not seeing it instead as sitting at a unique place in redemptive history, that it's a hinge, mm-hmm. you know, that it's a hinge point, then you would take these passages where these, I mean, within the book of Acts, you see these things happening in various orders. Sometimes people are baptized by water first and then the Spirit. Sometimes people receive the Spirit first and then they receive water baptism. But we don't always see them happening simultaneously, which has caused many people to question is that normative? Yeah. Is that and and so I would say, and I think you guys would say that we're not seeing a normative statement here. What we're seeing is the early church learning um, about the aspects of the new covenant with which they are unfamiliar and coming to an understanding of how these things are simultaneous. Yeah, yeah, I think that's yes. You're right that the way people get there is because they're just re- they're reading the Bible. They're mm-hmm. like, well, look, these people were baptized twice, and in that mm-hmm. second one. There was this filling of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and prophecy and prophesying in tongues, um, but you're you're that makes sense in how they got there. You're right in saying that what we should really understand here is that this is the church in formation, mm-hmm. and we're also talking about a group of people who are very clear. We have not even heard of the Holy Spirit, right? So in many ways, Paul is. Um, I mean, he's he's kind of introducing to them a vital aspect of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is they had been spiritual. I would read this as saying these men had been spiritually prepared to become followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I would say that they were close to God fearers, like the category that's that's used in other places. And that's right. But they did not yet know about the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that God had sent the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ at Pentecost. And so you're saying they did have faith. Oh, here we go. (laughs) I should, I should have seen that I'm just asking for some consistency. Mile away. You just and we're back to the bro. story of Cornelius. You yeah. just walked JT into it. Does love. I don't love it. I'm just saying, be consistent. Okay, let's <laughs> let's reserve it. We are running short on time. we got to get to... I think Praise the, the Lord, we're almost out of time. The idols. They um, do, but you're too happy about it right I'm now. I'm not so happy about it. it. I'm just saying, you just articulated just my... For our listeners out there, I'd like you to know that anytime <laughs> one of you agrees with JT on social media, he screenshots it and texts it So feel free to do it as often as you want. <laughs> and they'll be getting texts from me as often as you do it. Uh, but here's, it, like, you just articulated my position perfectly. No, I'm I... so thankful that you did that. 
I'll even say you might have done it better than I did because you convinced me again. Oh my Thank gosh. You. Okay. The point of this conversation is not what JT wants it to be. The point of it is that it is understandable how people arrive at the position of a necessary baptism for the filling of the Spirit. You know how when the fruit of the Spirit lists patient and you think, right, I'm going to have to be really patient with unbelievers. <laughs> yeah, no, case in point right, right. here. Um, <laughs> but I have the Holy Spirit apparently. <laughs> but the point of this passage is not to say there is a second baptism, but that there was a vital aspect of the gospel that these men— had not heard. Yeah. They just were totally unfamiliar with. Uh, and Paul tells them, and then he prays for them, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them like he fell upon the church at Pentecost. Well, and also um, our fabulous intern, Crystal, put together a paper on this when mm-hmm. we were going through this last semester in the study. And I, I don't know if we linked to it in previous show notes, but we can certainly do that in these show notes job, on, on second baptism. Well, and you also realize he, Paul is... Uh, in Ephesus is just walking through what they just would have heard from Apollos yes. in chapter 18. Yeah. Yes, Like these right. two things are, are linked. linked. Yeah. That's They're right. hearing a, a, a message from Apollos about the baptism of John. Mm-hmm. And that's when Priscilla and Aquila actually go and explain to him the better mm-hmm. way, yeah. gently and quietly. Mm-hmm. And now they're dealing with the ministry effects of the gospel going forward, but not going forward in its fullness the way mm-hmm. that it, it could be more accurately explained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that ever happen in church? <laughs> Something gets explained and you're like, actually, we need to... <laughs> Like course correct a little bit, <laughs> yeah. and we're gonna have to redo some ministry stuff. Uh, and I always wait until it, after you're done with the sermon yeah, to send you about, an email. I was about to say, <laughs> anytime you teach, um, <laughs> we find out that Paul was there ministering for two years, yeah. right? And yeah. some interesting things happened during that time, <laughs> Be, um, beginning with the sons of Skiva. Which just sounds like another band name, Sons of Skiva. Was that your band name? No, but it, Crickleback. Um, and the Sons of oh, but Sons of Skiva are opening for Crickleback. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that does sound like a band name, like a like if you were like a Christian metal band. Sons but you were trying Skiva. to be obscure, like you were trying to not like be like. I don't think that Christian bands have to try to be obscure, That's, guys. There's no doubt. What about I'm that. saying is like you were trying to like not let them oh, know you were right, a, right, right. a Christian band. But what's going on in this story? What's I don't, hap- I don't know. <laughs> It's what's, okay to say that, right? What's happening here? I mean, so God's doing extraordinary miracles. It says, I don't know. By the hands of Paul, it says, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I mean, just that alone, y'all. I mean, come on. For we, real. Start, we start a ministry. And, selling handkerchiefs. Well, there are, there are televangelists who do just that. Um, handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. And evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which again, who knew that they were itinerant Jewish exorcists, right? There's a whole other a whole other cast of characters that has been added to the Bible storyline. This is wild. Yeah, you're just like, okay, so I guess there's a group of guys. I just imagine like they're all in the van and they're like, all right, guys, on to Ephesus. We gotta. It's a crowded van. Cast out some demons. They, uh, an, I'm going to assume it's an eight-seater van. Yes, for sure. Because <laughs> there's seven of them. Under, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom pro- Paul proclaims. Which, this is crazy. So they hear. This is another kind of Simon the Magi situation, right? They are hearing about this apostolic power in the name of Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. They don't really want Jesus. Mm-hmm. They really want the power. And so they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Mm-hmm. So it's a co-opting. We don't really want to follow Jesus. We don't really want to be followers of the way. Mm-hmm. We are. We have a trade, possibly, or mm-hmm. a vocation. We need this spiritual power, and we're willing to try to use the name of Jesus to exercise a spiritual power 
that we see elsewhere. And this is the pattern that we've seen. So you had Simon Magus who was like, how do I purchase the power of the right. Holy Spirit? And then you had Bar Bar Jesus yep. just recently who was like, um, I have I have – I have leveraged the power of an elected official on my behalf and don't want another power to threaten it. Yep. And now we see the seven sons of Sceva. So what we should assume is that these also are brokers of power in some sense. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And they're in Ephesus trying to do this thing. And it says the evil spirit answered them, the sons of Sceva, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was oh. the, I know, right? Just mic drop moment there. I don't know you. <laughs> But the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, uh, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon everyone, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay. So, and just to go a little bit more forward here, this ends up resulting in a riot. Okay, so... Spirit, an evil spirit leaps out of this guy, or leaps. This guy leaps with the evil spirit, <laughs> masters all these other dudes, and because of what happened here, this obvious example of evil on both sides—the sons of Sceva who are trying to co-opt the power of the name of Jesus, and the evil spirit who routs them all naked and wounded—fear falls upon everybody, and the name of the Lord Jesus is extolled. And then there, there is like almost a revival of sorts because people. It sounds like both in the Christian community already and those outside of the Christian community are coming together in a spirit of we need to fear the Lord. Yeah. And we need to stay far away from evil spiritual things. So they're bringing their uh, book, they burn their magic arts. Yeah. And their idols. And what happens is it says that there arose a, a, a no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered everyone together and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that may, she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She who whom all Asia and the world worship. And this results in a riot. He's not just a silversmith. He's a silver-tongued devil. Yeah, he is. Because he's like, oh, I mean, it's not just that we'll lose our economy, which <laughs> right. we most certainly will. It's right. like we don't want Artemis to topple. Yeah, we don't want to disrespect PS Artemis. is the way we have our economy. Right, exactly. So <coughs> what we see here is a real battle going on in Ephesus between the spiritual power of the Lord Jesus Christ present in followers of the way, the phrase that Acts, Luke uses throughout Acts to describe followers of Jesus, but a opposition among Ephesian power brokers that that's not a good thing for mm -hmm. business, mm -hmm. right? So there's people that are like burning their magic books, getting rid of their idols, confessing their practices, probably no longer going to the temple of Artemis. And this guy's like, this is a problem. 
this is an, an example of the gospel taking root in a community and beginning to just change it, not just change the lives of individual people, but to change the culture and the climate of an entire city. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. What else is going on here? Is there something else that we're missing? The economy is disrupted. Cultic worship is disrupted. Idols are falling. People's lives are being changed. Well, it seems to be that the conversions are obviously genuine because mm-hmm. otherwise the destruction of all of these implements yep. of worship would have meant an increase of trade right, w- yes. for the cynic, right? Like yep. the cynic would have been like, well, this won't last. Yep. So whatever this demonstration is, it has the credibility for them to think it could be the end of things as they know it. Yep. In Ephesus. That's yeah. that's a big deal. It is. I mean, like, it sounds like, I mean, they take up a collection. Like it's a credible threat is what I'm saying, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Yeah. They're saying essentially $50,000 worth of property damage yeah. has been done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 50,000 pieces of silver. Yeah. So it's like people have, <laughs> people have sacrificed a lot. Mm-hmm. Either a few people have sacrificed tons or... Uh, Lots and lots of people have sacrificed a little or maybe a little bit of both, but the town is being overturned, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 35, it says, uh, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, because the crowd is shouting out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, mm-hmm. uh, anytime somebody tries to give a defense of what's been happening here. The town clerk had quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who who is there who does not know that the city of, of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous, blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Mm-hmm. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And the next verse after the uproar ceased. Yeah. So like this town clerk, (laughs) this is just, it seems like town clerk is like the most unassuming of positions. (laughs) Like the town clerk stands up and, you know, like pushes his glasses up to his eyes and says, excuse me, you know, we're in violation of ordinance code, whatever, whatever. We should probably go back to doing business. It's it's kind of an anticlimactic end in some yeah. ways. Yeah, but like I wonder. I need. I'd love to see the translation of what it meant to be the town clerk. But yeah. like, this is a big deal mm-hmm, in right. the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. Yeah. Yep. So you have the walls of Babylon, Phidias statue of Zeus in Olympia, the Hanging Gardens in Babylon, the Colossus of Rhodes. Mm-hmm. I almost said the Colossus of Clout. Sandlot reference, but I'll save that for a later <laughs> later podcast. The pyramids of Egypt and the uh, I don't even know how to pronounce this one. The the mausoleum of Halicarnassus. I don't know yeah. what that is. Anyway, mausoleum. I, I knew mausoleum. I, that, the other one. Halicarnassus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. So, like, think about what that would be in a corresponding cultural moment for us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, seven wonders, whatever. But like, think about like this is a thriving economy, a massive cultic, you know, religious figure. And Jesus being proclaimed in the middle of it and the world being turned upside down as yep. a result of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Like this – they have so much hanging. Like mm-hmm. their entire world is oriented around this. Yep. Mm-hmm. So this, big... Yeah. I mean there's the spiritual draw of it but then the economic draw is also rooted in tourism. Right. Because yeah. this, this, this is a place of pilgrimage. It's a gathering place. I mean yeah. the remains of these sites are still places of pilgrimage That's to right. this day. Right. Yeah. And so what – 
what the silversmith is saying is, you know, hey, everybody knows that we don't want to mess with tourism mm-hmm. in our city. Yep. And then the clerk's like, everybody calm down. Yep. And this is probably the – not probably. This is the first time in the book of Acts where you get a sense that the Gentile mission is going to result in significant world and culture change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, like there are there have been there are moments of uh, uh, individual faith and group faith, particular events and situations. This is the first time where you get a little glimpse that oh boy, mm-hmm. this Jesus thing is going to be a disruptive force among what currently exists in world civilization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you're right, it is a global city, a powerful community that is having to deal with the results. Of the Christian community here. Mm-hmm. This is a little glimpse of what, gosh, the rulers of Nero and Domitian are going to have to deal with mm-hmm. when they think right. about right. Uh, what does it look like for the Christians to be a part of the community. Um, this is, yeah, it's just a really, it's a significant indicator that Christianity, as it begins to emerge and forms an alternative community, is going to change not just individual lives, but societies. Well, and I think there's an irony, there's an intentional irony here because <clears throat> Artemis is the fertility goddess, right? Mm-hmm. And so in this place where people have come and prayed and offered their petitions for f- fertility to um, to wood and stone yeah. for forever, yeah. where people have traveled to come and do this, now we're going to see that it is in fact fertile soil yeah. after all. And so the, that the church is going to be springing forth from here and that we have this Artemis who's the, who, who becomes in, in Ephesians a, a counterpoint for the idea of, um, of Eve being, yep. being the one who produces a serpent crusher. Like, mm-hmm. like you want to know where fertility is coming from? Yeah. Another woman entirely. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. And you get the, just this incredible birth really of like a powerhouse for the Gentile mission mm-hmm. and movement. Mm-hmm. Well, man, I felt like there was so much more that we could have talked about in this passage. We skipped over. Well, so I like much. how you introduced this really big scene right at the end of the podcast. I'm sorry. That's, That's just how it works sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> for more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching no Knowing faith. On our next episode, we will wrap up our study of the Apostles' Creed by looking at the last word. Amen. See you next time. Grace and peace.